0: Habakkuk's letter, the short three chapters of Habakkuk's letter, is this back-and-forth dance, this back-and-forth dialogue between him and God. Habakkuk Habakkuk cries out in lament, right? He he begs God, what are you doing? Why why won't you stop this? Why would you allow your people to to act this way? Are you ever going to step in and do something about this? The prophet cries out, and God answers him. I I don't think I've ever, as far as I'm aware, I don't think I've ever gotten a verbal answer from God when I cried out to Him. Maybe you're different. Probably not, though. Habakkuk, though, gets one of those answers. It's a short list of people, but Habakkuk got one, and it's preserved for us to to learn from and grow by and all of these things. Habakkuk gets an answer, and God says, oh, no, no, I see it, and I'm doing something about it. In fact, I'm already doing something about it. I've been doing something about it even before you were born. I'm raising up the empire of Babylon. You know those bitter and hasty people? I'm raising them up, and I'm going to use them to enact my judgment on you and the rest of Judah. And Habakkuk, he doesn't like that answer. You probably wouldn't either. I know I wouldn't. And so he throws what I think is a tantrum. I have tantrums happen in my house. I'm very used to seeing them. I know what the markers are, all right? He throws a tantrum. He holds his breath, and he demands a better answer. And instead of snuffing him out right then and there, God continues to be gracious with him. He gives him another. He presses in again. Not another answer. He, he doesn't change his mind. God, God doesn't change his mind. But God continues to engage. He says, write it down, Habakkuk. Make it plain. I don't want anybody mistaking what I'm about to do. I'm not going to change my mind. But as an act of love towards you, Habakkuk, I'm going I'm to go ahead and fill you in on what I've got planned after this moment. I'll tell you what I've got in store for the nations. I'll tell you what I've got planned for Babylon. After he uses them for his purposes and for his glory, they are also going to get what they deserve because God's fair like that. They're also going to get what is coming to them. But in Babylon's case, they, they're not like Judah. They don't have the faithfulness of God to, to lean on in the dark days and after the dark days. No, no, Babylon is not one of his covenant people. And so God is going to make an example out of them. They may be puffed up right now. Everybody else might be impressed at the moment at what Babylon is pulling off and how mighty and strong and, 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 and powerful they are. Everybody might be impressed with old Babylon over there, but they're puffed up right now, and I'm getting ready to punch them back down. I'm going to take them out. God says he's going to make it clear to the nations. What he does with a sinful people that aren't covered by his grace. And it's not pretty. Babylon will be destroyed. At the end of that little declaration, even though Babylon thinks they're powerful, even though Babylon thinks they're mighty, even though nobody can slow down, let alone stop, mighty Babylon right now, God says, I'm seated on the throne. He sets himself over and above Babylon and all of their false gods. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple and the whole earth keeps silence before me. That's how he closes out his declaration of what he's going to do with Babylon after he's done. I'm seated on the throne. And so last week, Last week, we began to look at Habakkuk's response to that revelation. Like, like if, if God says, oh yeah, Habakkuk, this is who I am. Like, how do you respond after that? What, what are you going with? What's the first thing out of your mouth after God says this about himself to you? Yes, sir, right? That, that's the appropriate response. No, no, what we saw was Habakkuk worships. He worships. He sings a song, right? He writes a, a worship song that, that would been that would have been sung in corporate worship. right? And, and I, I think it's the exact right response. I think, I think the appropriate response to seeing just a small glimpse of the glory of God. That in that song that, that JB talked about uh, and, and sang for us just a moment ago, when when God reveals himself, what's the natural knee-jerk response in that moment? The response ought to be worship right but that worship takes a couple of couple of forms and i think all of them are important i think we need to we need to touch every angle of this and and so what we saw last week was what we saw last week was fear a holy Healthy fear. Is that the right word? Yeah, I I think it is. I I really think it is. I think it is at least if you understand God's holiness correctly. Why? Because he's on an infinitely different level than us. We we may struggle to connect the dots on that. We We may struggle to see... The fear of the Lord is good and right. I don't think it's the knee-jerk reaction for most of us, at least in in our culture. But all throughout the Bible, whenever God's people encounter even a piece of God's holiness, they always hit the deck. They bail out. We, We pointed to Isaiah last week, right? He cries, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King. He he doesn't go. Oh, he knows what's going on here, and he's got this indictment against me, and I and I might I, I might go down in the trial. No 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 no. I've seen the king, and I and I, I'm in trouble now because I've I've seen the king. Isaiah looks like a golden boy compared to the the rest of his nation and compared to all of his neighbors and all of his friends. Isaiah comes off smelling like a rose, but the second he finds himself before the throne of God, he immediately understands the the depth and the weight and the heinousness of his sin. He goes, "Uh uh-oh. He understands that there's a gigantic problem. So we said last week that, that the first layer of a right response to the holiness of God, to the revelation of who God is and what God is doing is a holy fear, a healthy fear. We also said that it's the thing that fuels all the other healthy responses. Why? Because Because when you rightly understand who God is and who you are and how you relate to Him, when when that's rightly understood, when that's internalized in the deepest sense, and the deepest core of who you are, it fuels all the other healthy responses. Anything else is just a man-made attempt at being thankful. It's a man-made attempt at at being grateful, of of responding, oh, I like that. But when it's fueled by a healthy fear of the Lord, it... Sustains itself. It's not something that you have to pull off. It's just something that flows out of you because you were created for it. But I told you last week that fear was only the first layer, and so Habakkuk hits the next two. And uh, well, I want to I want to look at the second one this morning, uh, starting in verse one. Starting in verse one. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shagayanoth. O Lord I have heard the report of your uh, uh, the report of you and your work O Lord do I fear in the midst of the years revive it in the midst of the years make it known in wrath remember mercy. Okay, so Habakkuk has now come to this place where he better understands uh, the transcendence of God, the white-hot holiness of God, and so now there's a healthy fear of the Lord buried at the very core of who he is and his interaction with God, but he also, in the very same moment, trusts that God is as infinitely merciful as he is holy. Both of those things are true. Both of those things ought to be held in tandem. And so he asks God here to remember his mercy even as he acts with perfect justice. To be as merciful in this new season as he has been in so many countless instances before. In the midst of the years, revive it, he says. If I could give the Stephen Woodard paraphrase, play that one again, God. I like that one. Let's do that one again. And then Habakkuk does something that I think is really, really smart. Really smart. Um, if you're a note taker, this is the kind of thing that you're going to want to write down and save for later. Right? It's just absolutely brilliant. Habakkuk begins recounting the greatness of God in the past. He starts telling the stories to themselves. In, in in the middle of this worship song, Habakkuk starts reminding himself and, and remember the rest of the congregation of who God has continuously shown himself to be. He brings all the old stories back up, right? Stories they would have known. Stories they would have been incredibly familiar with. Stories that not only had they heard before, but if if they're the mature ones in the room had probably told before. Right? These are stories that they've told themselves, and, and they're familiar to them in all these kinds of ways, and so, and so why is that such a brilliant move? Because our hearts are fickle. We are a fickle people. See, the, the truth, no matter what you really think about yourself, the, the truth is that we're all going to steer the ship to whatever we're actually staring at. I'm guilty of that all the time. And to be intentional on purpose, about putting our eyes back on our faithful Savior, even, especially in the midst of the trying moment, but to be intentional about doing that on a regular basis, it's an exercise that's going to end up affecting some massive things in your heart and life. To be on purpose about it. I'm telling you, it's an incredibly smart play. So let's look at, the, at what stories that Habakkuk wants to, to bring back to our attention, starting in verse 3. God came from Teman and and the Holy One from Mount Paran, all right? And he says, Selah. All right, so let's call time out there. So Habakkuk calls back to another time and place. He says, God came from Teman. Teman literally means south. It's also the name of a city and a region, which is to the south. You're welcome. All right? And so this is the reason why I stand up with the microphone on under the lights because I bring that kind of insight. You're welcome. Uh, Timon is to the south. Timon is to the south. Awesome. Geographically speaking, Timon is the region that separates Palestine from the Sinai Peninsula. So, so why is that significant? Because any good Bible student is going to know that there's a history of traveling through that area. Right, it brings back memories of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. Right, there was a time period in Israel's history where they were hanging out right there, in and through Teman. I mean, even if you don't have much of a church background, those stories might just be the stories that you're most familiar with out of the Old Testament. Right, you think of you think of god's people as slaves in egypt and and then god does something big he he brings the the plagues right and he he calls them out of egypt and he crushes the empire of egypt and he has them traveling through and and they get to sinai right and they, they're given the ten commandments charleston heston goes up on the mountain and they get the ten commandments right, right? and then and then they're, they're picking up manna on a daily basis or if you learned it in kids sunday school cornflakes right All right and so like those are the stories that you probably are most familiar with out of the bible crossing the red sea woo, that's a good story I remember coloring a picture of that in vacation Bible school when I was like eight years old. Had fish kind of sticking their head out the wall of water. It was funny. We're talking about stories here that God's people knew, knew well, and could clearly identify God working in. Could clearly see that God was doing some massive, massive things. And we're further assured that this is what Habakkuk's aiming at because of his next reference. He says, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Paran was the name of the wilderness where most of the wanderings occurred. If you can see the map in your head, think northern third or northern half-ish of the Sinai Peninsula. That's Paran. But Habakkuk is not merely calling our attention to familiar stories. He's calling our attention to the God who's sovereign over those stories. And so here in verse 3, he calls him the Holy One. The Holy One. As we've already pointed out, that that holiness produces a a healthy fear of the Lord when it's understood correctly. And and Habakkuk responds with, with, with an appropriate healthy fear. But the question does emerge once that appropriate fear of the lord is in place once that's locked in what's the next step what's the next layer of response and habakkuk here he says selah selah we talked about this a little bit last week we're not really sure what the word selah actually means Uh, even though it's sprinkled all throughout the psalms, but the prevailing theory is that it's a musical notation that probably means something akin to rest. But more than rest, we think it carries the idea of a a spirit-filled, praise-filled rest. So why do we think that? Partially, because the, the root word buried in the Hebrew, even though we don't know what selah means, we, we, there's some root words in there that we do know what they mean. And so the root word in the Hebrew carries the idea of holding up something to weigh it, to, to, to seriously assess it and take all of it in. That's what's going on in the root word of selah. But we also theorize that it means rest because, as I told you last week, the word is constantly dropped in these stop-and-think-about-it kind of moments. A verbal haymaker has just been thrown, and now the very best thing to do is take a second, stop whatever you're doing, and think about what has just been said. It's always dropped in those moments. It's used over and over again in these moments where where the clear expectation is that you need to call a a holy time out and just marinate in that. Rest here and deeply consider what has just been proclaimed. And I know it's a tiny little word, and I know that we're not 100% locked down on its literal meaning, but I don't get the impression that Habakkuk is dropping selahs in his worship song just because he likes the sound of it. Just because he thinks it's a fun-sounding word. I think he's calling the congregation to something. When God reveals himself, the very first action of response ought to be a healthy fear. But man, I think right on the heels of that, the second response is a deep and abiding rest. Rest. A praise-filled rest. I know that's going to seem like maybe we're trying too hard to read between the lines to some folks, I, but I don't, I don't think it is. Um, we're going to get to the atom bomb with this theory at the end of the song but we've got to deal with the what the text actually gave us here and I, I think we need to notice as we get to that atom bomb in verse 16 i think we need to pay attention to the fact that as we're making our way that direction habakkuk is going to drop a selah here and there in some incredibly strategic moments I think he wants us to pay attention to something. I think he's intentionally preparing the congregation's heart for the atom bomb to come. Habakkuk calls our attention to a time and a place long before his own as as God is actively rescuing his people out of slavery, as he's actively refining them as a holy people, as he's actively setting them apart to, to represent him to the rest of the nations, as he's actively and ever so slowly drawing them into the land of promise. And the picture that we're given here is that even in the wilderness, even in the dark place, even in the hard times, the Lord is holy and comes from the mountain. And back, it constructs the congregation. Don't rush through this. Slow down here. Marinate in this. Dwell on this. Rest in this. Remember who He is. Remember what He has done. Praise be the Lord. Rest. Look at the rest of verse 3. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. So when Israel was at the foot of Mount Sinai, this is literally what was happening. right? You remember that story from Sunday school growing up? Exodus 19, they're gathered at the, at the base of the mountain, ready to hear from God, ready to receive the law. They're commanded to, to gather around the mountain, but don't touch it, because if you touch it, you'll die. Right? That's the command that comes down in Exodus 19. But, but, but honestly, as you read the story, I'm not sure that command is even necessary. God God said it, and God gets to say it. God says what he wants. I think it's preserved for us. But I don't know if God needed to say don't touch the mountain, because in Exodus 20, as you keep reading the story, they don't want to touch the mountain. They're terrified. They want nothing to do with that mountain. They don't want to go up. Why do they not want to go up? Because it's a terrifying scene. To use Moses' words specifically, the mountain trembled greatly. It quaked it rumbled. Lightning flashed all around the top. Smoke descended on the top of the mountain as God came down and then went, uh-uh! I don't want to do that. I want nothing to do with that moment. As a side note, just, just a real quick freebie. Notice that the creation always responds appropriately when God's holiness is seen. We may struggle with that. The rest of creation doesn't. It It quakes. It thunders and lightnings. It's holy. Habakkuk calls their attention to the foot of Sinai, a place that the fear is palpable. It's not just this thing that they think ought to be given as lip service to a God they don't know. They watch him descend on the top of the mountain and they understand that they need to stay at the bottom. They understand that deeply. The question that haunts me, though, is what was it that prepared them for that moment? What was it that got them to the foot of Sinai? The answer is that God loved a people and rescued them out of slavery, right? He, he broke the back of Pharaoh. He broke the, the Egyptian empire in two with plagues and pestilence, and he brought them across the Red Sea to his holy mountain. In Exodus 19, 4 and 6, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. See, God's holiness and God's mercy are inseparable when it comes to his relationship with Israel. They're inseparable. It's baked into Israel's story at every stage from beginning to end. Habakkuk calls our attention to a moment in their story when that was clearly and unmistakably seen. So while their current circumstances may be harder to discern right now, while, while there's smoke on the horizon and Babylon is eventually coming, while, while it's hard to see the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness of God in their season, in Habakkuk's day and age, there is nothing, there's nothing new here. God hasn't changed. He's not doing something new. Different. Whether pagan and pestilence are in the rearview mirror or they're out on the horizon, God's still the same. Whether whether the grand story of God doing this thing is back here or it's coming down the pipe, God is the same yesterday, today, yesterday, today, and forever. So put your eyes on Him and what He has consistently done, rather than just what's what's in front of you right now. Rather than just what you see, remember who he is and it'll change the way you see it. Look at verse 6. Habakkuk's is going to unfold some more of the story. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Verse 7, I saw the tents of cushioned affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Okay, so God sees the whole scope, right? There's, There's nothing on the earth that is outside of his sovereign gaze. He's not tied to to some specific location. He he sees and he intervenes for his people wherever they might be scattered. That's really, really good news when you're Habakkuk and you're staring down the barrel of a similar gun. Wherever God allows his people to be, he's there with them. He had not gone anywhere. Israel may have been in a different location. His people may be located in some other space, but God didn't stay back home while Israel left. What's coming along with the Babylonian attack? Exile. It's a massive, scary deal, but it's not an unfamiliar moment for God's people. They've been here before, and God still has not changed. Just like in Egypt, he will allow pain for his glory, and he will eventually step in for his glory. And when that day comes, the mountains will scatter. The foundations of the earth will be undone. The nations watching all of this play out will clearly get the message here, Habakkuk references Cushion and Midian. They were, they were tribes in the wilderness who watched God carry his people along. Well, while normal circumstances would dictate that, that Cushion and Midian protect their land, I mean, you got this, this nation of people traveling through your area, right? And so if you're living in this area, if you're Cushion and Midian, and the, the Israelites are passing through, your, your instinct is to want to protect what's yours, right? It's to, it's to, to guard your house. But the Bible tells us they, they didn't want anything to do with them. Because they saw how God was working from afar. They saw how God carried his people along. The surrounding nations knew how much God protected and loved his covenant people. They wanted nothing to do with it. But it's not just the surrounding nations. The rest of creation responds to this loving protection of his people as well. Look at verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. So as God lovingly acts in the Exodus story to to rescue his people and to, to show his power, to show his goodness, to show his mercy, the rest of creation responded appropriately. God showed his power over the waters. He showed his power over the Nile. He showed his power over the Red Sea. He showed his power over the Jordan River as they crossed through unharmed. God's work was so efficient that Habakkuk says here that he delivered them on a chariot of salvation. It's interesting when you think about wandering in the desert for 40 years. But God was with them. He got them exactly where they needed to be, exactly when they needed to be. He unsheathed his bow and left the arrows loose. It was never a fair fight. Not even close. But notice that Habakkuk shifts here to addressing God himself. He started off talking to the people about God, but he shifts from using he, his language to saying you, Your." The congregation just kind of fades into the background here. At least for a moment. And i got to be honest, I think that might be exactly what needs to happen when we sing. I think that's a good thing in worship. When, when even those you're participating with just kind of fade out of view. And you have an audience of one. We talked last week about the idea of of God's people being a a singing people, and I I get the hang-up. Some people are really bad at it. There's been times where we've turned off the the crowd mic somebody was standing too close. (laughs) But if Habakkuk models something here that's good and right, maybe it doesn't matter. As everybody else fades to the background, And we have the audience of one. God alone. We do what is good and right and what he's called us to, right? But Habakkuk is a good leader. So he comes back for a brief moment and he declares to the congregation, rest. Selah. Remember this. Dwell on this. Take an intentional moment and remind yourself again and again of His great and undeserved faithfulness to you. Praise Him. Trust Him. Rest in Him. Selah. Selah. Think deeply on this. Verse 9 keeps going. You split the earth with rivers. Verse 10, the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. Hey, does that story sound familiar? Those of you who are good, uh, good Bible students, grew up in Sunday school. It's, it's Joshua taking the land, right? The sun and stood still and gave them more time to fight. So the mighty works of God—they're they're, not—they're not isolated to one moment. They're not isolated to one generation of moments, even. God was working powerfully leading up to and during the Exodus. He was also working just as powerfully when he led the next generation into the promised land. So the question emerges you think he might be faithful generations down the line? You think he's still faithful? You think he's still capable? You think he's still good? Has he changed? Verse 12. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Uh, You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. So as Israel marched through the land, God went before them. And whenever God went before them, it was a done deal, right? Like It was just over. In verse 12, uh, we're told that God threshed the nations. In other words, the nations are like grain being tossed into the wind, separated out for God's purposes. At the end of verse 13, <laughs> he says, He crushed them and laid them bare as his people entered the promised land. Which is a fun little picture, right? I, you can't spend long as a Christian before you got to deal with a, a big question of, of whether or not God was allowed to do such a thing to the people inhabiting the promised land you ever dealt with that question whether it's in your own heart or, or maybe from somebody kind of looking at faith from the outside like why why would God be mean to all the people who are already in the promised land? that seems ungodlike seems kind of unfair to sweep through the land and lay waste to a bunch of innocent people? And we talked about this in, at length before, in case you're new, the, the answer to the can God, can God do that question is actually another question. Who, whoever said that they were innocent? They're, they're not even close to innocent. Not only does the Bible explicitly clear that there's no one who does good, no, not one, but, and so, Even the kindest, most generous nation that you can think of on earth, they they are still in desperate need of a savior. Hundred percent true. But the Bible is also explicitly clear that the inhabitants of the promised land before Israel got there were some of the worst people around. They weren't they weren't innocent. We're told in Genesis fifteen that God let them build up wrath for four hundred years before he did something about it. And can we just be honest? Like, I'm not that patient. How about you? To allow someone to continue to walk in wickedness. I'm not going to give it 40 years, let alone 400. But eventually his judgment came for those people, and when it came, it was decisive. Decisive. And so the picture here in verse 13 of them being laid bare from thigh to neck, it has the same idea uh, of when God uh, was uh, spelling out the destruction of of Babylon that was coming, and he says that their uncircumcision will be revealed. Remember back in chapter 2? They're going to be left exposed and shamed. They're clearly going to be seen as someone who is not God's covenant people. So, so what was it that made Israel awesome then? Right, like, like we can we can kind of get behind the idea that that these other nations they were wicked and they had sin and so God did what was appropriate and fair he he brought his justice he brought his holy wrath on those other nations but what is it over here that makes Israel the good guys? I mean, how do they? How do they position themselves to be the recipients of grace when everybody else got wrath-filled justice? The answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Over and over and over again, all throughout the Old Testament, God tells his people that they did nothing to earn this. He's just constantly beating that drum. And we see the same thing here in verse 13. Let's read it again. He says, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your, what's that word? Anointed, right? Anointed in this case means special or or, or the called out ones. They've been separated out from the whole and set apart for a grand purpose. So why did Israel get grace when everybody else got what was owed to them? It's not because they brought something to the table that positioned them. That has nothing to do with it. They were called out and set apart from the whole for a grand purpose, to show the world the immeasurable grace and mercy of God. In fact, like I could make a pretty strong argument that Israel deserved it less than everybody else. You could definitely find better nations than Israel. They didn't deserve to be there. God is good. Oh, he is good. And he set his affections on an undeserving people. And he loved them with a spectacular love. He is faithful, even as they are faithless. And Habakkuk calls to the congregation, Selah, Selah stop here and remember this rest in this yes correction and judgment are coming they're coming down the pipe god has not changed he is still faithful no you don't deserve his grace in this moment but you didn't deserve it back then either judah's a mess right now but they've always been a mess Remember who God is and remember what they have done. You have never deserved his grace. That's literally why it's called grace. Don't you dare let yourself forget it. Habakkuk says, be intentional. Set your eyes on the goodness of God in this season especially when it's hard what's what's coming down the pipe for judah is not out of line with his character it's not even out of line with israel's history and so remember who he is and remember what he has done find your rest not in your circumstances but in him selah rest dwell here He picks it back up in verse 14. It says you pierced with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And here's the atom bomb. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Habakkuk began this letter to mad at God mad at the world mad at what God was allowing to happen around him and that anger was elevated even when God told him what he was doing he said no no, no I don't like that answer give me a better answer but God has patiently and graciously carried Habakkuk along pulled Habakkuk along and I think guys, I think our boys finally come around I think he finally got where God wants him to be. It it doesn't mean he likes what's going on, but I think he's exactly where God wants him to be. He doesn't like what's coming, but but he does know. He doesn't like what's coming. He does know exactly who's in charge. He knows, and I think he deeply trusts, that God will not act inconsistently with who he is. He can lean on that. He can rest in that. And so even as rottenness enters his bone, what a, what a picture. As the full weight and reality of what's coming sets in, it's not a pretty scene. It's a dark day indeed. But even as rottenness enters his bones, there is a real, and I mean a real, hope on the other side of it doesn't matter how dark the day is he knows who's in control what what started with a fight habakkuk had a had a bone to pick with god right but it ends with habakkuk letting go Even as their world begins to to fall apart around them, Habakkuk calls the faithful remaining in Judah to a trust-filled, praise-laden rest. Dwell here. Rest here. Find your hope here. It's not a rest that ignorantly pretends that the problem isn't there. I think we all know too many people who who live in the world that way. If they just ignore a problem long enough, it'll, it's supposed to go away, right? That's not what Habakkuk's calling the people to at all. Uh, this a, is a rest that is birthed out of knowing who will be with you in the midst of those problems and that he's also going to be there on the other side of those problems. Rest. It's a It's a rest that understands at the very core of who you are that That while you're incapable and while you're insufficient and while you're not powerful enough, while you're not any of those things, someone bigger and stronger and smarter and kinder and sweeter than you is in control. He's got it. The right and appropriate response to the revelation of God is first fear then it's rest. Worship begins with a healthy fear of the Lord, but it doesn't take long at all. It really doesn't. If if you're seeing Him correctly, it doesn't take long for that fear to shift into a deep, abiding rest. A rest that can only be found in Him. There are a lot of other things in our world that claim to offer hope, that claim to offer uh, uh, satisfaction, that claim to offer rest, but He alone is faithful. He alone can deliver on all of his promises. So if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, the question I would ask to you is really, really simple. What, what else would you dare put your hope in? Not smart. It's gonna fail you. Jesus offers something infinitely Better The Bible, Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated from God because of our sin. There, there is no one who does good. No, not even one. And, and, and like Israel all those years before, God bestows his love, though, on an undeserving sinner. Not because they've earned something, but because he set his affections on some not because they've bellied up to the table with something to offer, not because they are lovely, but because he is good. And even as they are completely undeserving, God loves them with a spectacular love. A life changing love jesus the eternal son of god came he put on flesh and he dwelt among us he lived the sinless life that neither you nor i are capable of living he died on the cross as a completely innocent substitute to pay the penalty that is owed for yours and my sin and he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness and so he now calls as the king who conquered sin and death he now calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith says, look what I have done for you. You will be my people and I will be your God. Whether we're talking Exodus 19 or we're talking today, God hasn't changed. Here's what I have done. Now respond to me. Respond to me. And you can respond to the gospel this morning by meeting Jesus. You can do that wherever you are, whether you're in this room or you're watching us online right now. Jesus is with you where you are. and You can call on him in this moment to save you. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for you to put action what he's stirring in your heart. It's a time specifically built out to give you to respond. And so uh, if you're in this room, I'll be down front here. If you're if you're watching us online, you can respond in the comment section or you can use the, the comment section contact form that we've linked in there, man, I'd love to talk to you. You don't need me. You need Jesus, but man, I'd love to be helpful. I'd love to walk with you as you figure out what that response of faith looks like. Let me know. We can talk about it. But what about for those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How do, how do we respond? The same way we do every single week by by repenting of sin and by leaning into His goodness. Last week we, we asked the question, does your response of worship have have a nuanced fear of the Lord baked into the center of it? Maybe, maybe this week the question ought to be, is your response of worship built around celebrating Him or something less than Him? Celebrating yourself. Are you intentionally calling yourself to remember who he is and what he has done. Listen, I, I don't want to be all curmudgeon about it. I really don't, but I'm kind of growing weary of singing praise songs about how special I am. I don't want anything to do with that anymore because I know who I am. I'm completely undeserving. I know the truth about me, and he is infinitely more worthy of praise. Like Habakkuk's audience Maybe our response this morning is to say, find our rest in Him. Dwell here. Think deeply here. Find our rest here. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. However God is calling you to respond this morning, let's do that together as a church family. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Habakkuk 3. As we wrestle with these things, would you continue to show yourself big and good and worthy and holy in all of the things that you are? Call us to to let go and find our rest in you alone. I find it true in my own heart that, that... that I'll give lip service to saying rest here, but then I'll, then I'll try my very best to work up the solution. And that means I don't actually understand the rest part. Convict me of sin. Draw me to repentance. Help me let go of those lesser things and cling to you instead. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Would you open eyes to see? Would you open ears to hear, hearts to know? Would you draw people into your kingdom by your grace? Call us to response. Breathe life into us. And set us apart for your kingdom. God, help us no matter who we are, to see you as you are, to respond appropriately to the revelation of who you are in worship. By singing and by everything else, would you make your name more famous? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Let's stand and respond. we
0: seat for just a second while we blow through some announcements. All right, so uh, we, this Wednesday night, are going to have one last hymn sing for the summer. Uh, we committed to doing a hymn sing once a month uh, for the, the COVID season and the summer season. And we're going to do one more, uh, close out our summer series, if you want to call it that, by having our August one this Wednesday night. Uh, what's different about it, though, is that we will not be offering one in this room. alright We're going to strip it back to uh, what we started back in March, going back to my creepy little basement with the fake fire. All right, It's going to be a lot of fun. We hope that you'll join us on Facebook Live for that. Uh, it'll be on this page if you're watching us online, the same page that you're on right now. And so uh, we would love for you to join us for that time online at seven o'clock Wednesday night for our last hymn sing of the summer. And then we're going to shut it down for a while to make it special again. There you go. All right. Uh, announcement number two. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to be participating in the Lord's Supper together. Uh, we always like to give you a week's worth of, of, uh, of a heads up. One, because we want people to prepare their hearts for that moment. Uh, also, we know that our church family uh usually prepares to give uh, through our uh, benevolence offering. Uh, during that time, we always take up a special offering on that day uh, for benevolence needs uh, that the deacons use throughout the church and outside the church. Uh, and so if you want to prepare for that. Also, if you are unable to join us in person, uh, it's better if you're here. I really do want to say that clearly. Uh, that we gather together for that purpose. But for those of you who are unable to do so yet, we actually have some communion elements available for you, and you can pick them up at the office sometime this week. Uh, for those of you who are here in the room but know that you can't be here next week, uh, there's some on the uh, back table out in the foyer as you're walking out the door, all right? And so if you need those, come by the office and pick them up. They're available for you. They're the little individually packed wafer and juice. Uh, the wafer is that thing that's like pretty much paper, uh, but it's what we got. There you go. All right, so that's coming next Sunday. And then announcement number three uh, is a special one. Uh, so, uh, I told you last week that we were getting ready to, uh, launch a new, uh, giving emphasis, all right, and so, uh, can I get the slides up there? It's probably blank, there you go. So, as they're working on, there it is, all right, so, uh, I've been talking with my father-in-law. If you don't know, Katie's dad is the head of a missions organization called Therefore International. They're working in Ghana, West Africa. And so I was talking to him about some projects that they have going on. And we were thinking, hey, maybe our church might be good at uh, attacking this project. And then before I could even announce it to you, there was another person who came in and said, I want to fund that project, and they beat us to it, and so we had to regroup and figure out a new thing, and so after talking to him for another couple of weeks, uh, we got a new thing uh, that we want to tell you about, um, and so just call you to prayerfully consider giving to, uh, and it's this, all right, so uh, I know it's kind of hard to see in the pictures, maybe for those watching online, we can go full screen, all right, but that is bread being sold out of the back of a trailer, which sounds really appetizing, right, all right, but in Ghana, that is Pretty much the day's lunch for most rural people. All right? They go, walk by somebody selling bread on the side of the road. It's a sweet bread. It's really good, like really good. I've, I've had it several times. I like Ghanaian sweet bread. All right? But they sell it out of the back of the truck, usually for just a couple of uh, cents to a dollar. All right? It's really cheap, and it's this really good meal, cheap meal that uh, people walking through and going to the farms and working in the cocoa fields, uh, all those things uh, use for their lunch. And so, they figured out, hey, we could sell some bread, and if we do it a certain way, we could provide jobs for ladies in our community who have a hard time earning money for their families because it's an agricultural community and there's nothing for them to do. All right? And so uh, they started a company called True Bread. Uh, based on John 6:32, and so not only is it this unique opportunity which creates job opportunities for ladies and kids and, and people in the village there, in a village called Kutakata, right? Not only does it create jobs and create uh, uh, money for families in that area, but it's also been become this really good bridge to gospel conversations because people are like, why do you call it true bread? And, they, and they've actually trained their people to tell them the gospel based on that question, So they're doing some really good stuff. God is blessing it. He's actually doing some big things. And so uh, you see some pictures up here. uh, I know it's hard to see for those in the room, all right, but uh, of ladies washing bowls and rolling out the dough. Uh, They're getting ready to bake it in that clay oven over there, all right? And so it's this really cool thing uh, that they're just making a bunch of bread and selling it, and it's going really well. They're They're making some money for families, and they're sharing the gospel. And so that raises a question, though. How can we help? Like, if it's going successfully, how can we step in and, like, why would they need us? All right, so three truths. One, villagers are currently producing about 1,000 pounds of bread a week on rented mixing equipment 18 miles away, 30 kilometers in Ghanaian speak. And so they don't own any mixing equipment. Uh, The clay oven is in the village. They've been baking it in the village. But in order to mix all the ingredients together on that scale, they've got to take everything 18 miles away and hire out some industrial mixers. Right? So not only are they paying for this, they have to wait in line for this because there are other customers for the mixers. And if you're a bread maker, that doesn't sound like fun to you, does it? Baking is all about timing, right? And so if you got to travel 18 miles with your, with your stuff to mix it and then bring it back to bake it, you've got a problem. And so truth number two, the rental fee reduces their volume and lowers their already small margins to just a few dollars per batch. Right? Uh, they, they buy s- uh, sacks of flour in 50-kilogram size, and by the time they sell it, they've made about $16 off of that. And they haven't paid the mixtures yet or their sellers. All right? And so the margins are incredibly small here, which leads to truth number two. Or truth number three, the villagers simply owning their own mixing equipment would dramatically elevate their ability to make a profit in an economic culture where a couple of dollars actually makes a gigantic difference. We're talking about an economic area, a part of the world where someone's life might legitimately be saved because they were able to afford $1.50 worth of malaria medicine. And so if we could come in and provide mixers for them to have in the village, then uh, they can actually double and triple up their margins here and actually create revenue for these families that actually might be life-saving in some circumstances because... Things that are already cheap in their culture now become more available because they have a couple extra dollars to spare. And so you may be wondering, how in the world, could, like, what do, what do industrial mixtures cost? Like, if I were to go down to the restaurant supply store, what would that cost me here? A lot more than in Ghana, actually. So in Ghana, to buy one made in Ghana, produced in Ghana, and installed in the village, 2,700 bucks. That's it. We could dramatically and for a long, long time affect the financial situations and the gospel opportunities of a region, a rural region of Ghana, for years to come, for 2700 bucks, I have every bit the confidence that our church can handle that. Like, 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 I'm not even slowed down by that. So here's what I want to do. Would you prayerfully, I mean, I mean legitimately prayerfully consider helping us just knock that out? Like, let's just just do it (laughs) and forever change some, some people's lives. Sound good? I love you guys, like a lot. That's why I trust that we can do this. Let's do it. Hey, we got small groups. Whether you're staying for small groups or you're getting out of here for something else, we love you. Let's pray and be dismissed.